0: I'm Tristan Gruno, and this is Hokkaido 150. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Scott Harrison, program manager and policy analyst at the Asia Pacific Foundation of Canada. Dr. Harrison is the author recently of Enhancing Trans-Pacific People to People Ties, Japan-Canada Twinning or Sister relationships, published in Canada Asia Agenda in 2018. Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's
1: a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation.
0: In your work at the Asia-Pacific Foundation, you've been publishing a number of articles talking about relationships between Japan and Canada, particularly dealing with indigenous issues. And I understand your past research has also looked at the Ainu and Hokkaido, uh, and now even going into ties between indigenous groups in Japan, Canada, and even China, I understand. So Can you tell us a little bit about this work you're doing at the Asia-Pacific Foundation and how the Ainu and Hokkaido fit into this?
1: Certainly. So I should just start by saying the Asia-Pacific Foundation of Canada is a not-for-profit organization that's focused on Canada-Asia relations. So when I joined the foundation in in 2014, I I started with a a project that was looking at the indigenous factor of East Asia-Canadian-Arctic relations. So notably Japan, China, South Korea were looking at and increasing engagement with the Arctic and the Arctic Council. And what I thought was missing from that dialogue, or, or wasn't highlighted as much, was the indigenous angle. How were these states and governments from East Asia going to engage with and support indigenous peoples in the Arctic through the Arctic Council? And so I, I began looking at that, and again, building off my background in indigenous and Ainu history, and then from there, I was involved in a number of projects that were looking at how the Canadian provinces engage with Asia on, on trade and people to people ties and twinning agreements. And I was, I was quite interested in, in this aspect of, of twinning. And while I was looking at this, I made a trip to Burnaby Mountain, just a city right beside Vancouver where our head office is based. And I saw a, a massive sculpture that when I saw it, I knew it right away to be I knew. And I thought, after all these years of studying Ainu history and about Ainu art as well, how did I not know about this sculpture being here? And when I read the, the plaque about it, it said it was built by an Ainu artist from Kushiro as part of the kushiro burnaby Sister City Agreement, in celebration of that agreement. And so I began to weave this research based on how Canada engages with Asia mixed with my interest in Indigenous history and Ainu history. And that led to some work in looking at sister city agreements and how it relates to Indigenous engagement between Canada and Asia.
0: Could you tell us a little bit more about this monument? What is the background of this relationship? How is it that Kushiro in Hokkaido and Burnaby here in BC formed this relationship?
1: So it was part of a, a drive that was coming out of U.S. Cold War relations And even though it came out of the U.S., Canada was also looking at ways of engaging with the Asia Pacific. And one of these ways was through twinning agreements or sister city agreements. And at the time, both Canada and Japan were quite active in in this area, looking for similar kind of cities of of population sizes, of similar industries and and the like. And this particular agreement came out mainly through mayors searching these kinds of agreements out using embassies in Canada and in, in Japan. So the agreement was signed when these two cities came together to to try and build these cross-Pacific relations. And they would come and go over the years, and they would usually have alternate meetings. Uh, One year they would have mayor and council meetings in Kushlo, the following year would be in Burnaby. And one of the years of the meetings in Burnaby, the mayor of Kushlo invited his friend, an Ainu artist, Toko Noburi, to join the trip. And while he was joining the trip, They were up uh, visiting Simon Fraser University, and during the meetings, Mr. Toko decided to go roam the grounds, and while he was roaming the grounds, he came across this viewpoint on Burnaby Mountain that overlooked Georgia Strait and the Lionsgate Bridge. And he thought, this place is amazing. We could use this site as a symbol of the friendship between these two cities. And as a side note, Toko did bring some gifts, some Ainu carvings and gifts, to exchange with the First Nations people in the greater Vancouver area. And it was during these meetings he proposed to the mayor of Burnaby at the time that he create an Ainu sculpture to commemorate the, the friendship and goodwill between the two cities. And so a few years later, he came back with his son and built this monument. I can't remember how many totems it consists of. But it weaves Ainu mythology and totems together on this monument that still stands in Burnaby. The city of Burnaby still looks after and maintains this monument to the present day.
0: As you were saying, you know, it's important to keep in mind, even when looking at these trans-Pacific relations, keeping in, in mind the indigenous perspective and how this changes our understanding of these relations. And this is something that you were trying to do in your first book, The Indigenous Ainu of Japan and the Northern Territories Dispute. Can you tell us about how does this Northern Territories dispute look different when we look at it from the perspective of the Indigenous Ainu?
1: Yeah, that's a wonderful question. That's kind of how I started that project. I was reading about international relations and politics and history in Northeast Asia, and I was looking at territorial disputes and noticed that almost everyone that was working on the issue of the Northern Territories wasn't addressing the Ainu aspect of it. And the people that, the, the scholars that did, would maybe add a footnote here or a paragraph or two paragraphs here. And I it took a big interest in going, what, why is this? From a Canadian perspective, you could understand the Northern Territories or the Kuro Islands as part of Ainu traditional territory. And even though I knew that was a Canadian perspective, and I didn't want to impose it on a Japanese or Ainu historical situation, but that brought up a number of questions to dive into looking at this territorial issue or non-issue, depending on what side you're looking at it, and look at it from, try and look at it from an Ainu perspective or a perspective not from the center of Moscow or from Tokyo, but as a perspective from the region where the issue is taking place.
0: I guess to delve in a little bit more into this Northern Territories dispute, this is ongoing still contestation over the islands today. Uh, and even just recently, there was concerns about whether or not there would be ferry service between the islands and the mainland of Japan. Is that right? And maybe one of the things that often gets forgotten is there are people still inhabiting these islands. What exactly is the Ainu role in this dispute today?
1: So maybe I should just clarify too that the, the dispute or these the issue over these islands started before the Cold War, they just took a different shape. So when you look at the changing dynamics in the Ojos region, you see the exchanges of these islands move back and forth between the Tokugawa, which had a weak control in the area, and Tsarist Russia, and then the Soviet Union becomes involved in the modern Meiji state. And then it goes through a colonial era, and then post-war era, the islands and Sakhalin come under Soviet authority. So by I guess by saying that It wasn't a construct of the Cold War. The shape of the territorial issues in the region just changed a little bit. But what we can see is that in the post-war years, it got caught up in Cold War politics as well. And so I guess the Ainu involvement, Ainu were trying to get themselves involved in the early post-war years in the 1950s or so, trying to take part in these dialogues. It wasn't very successful. And then the Ainu kind of disappeared from the dialogue completely in the 1960s or so. And then, sometime in the mid 1970s, some Ainu and the Utali Ainu Association of Hokkaido begin to talk about the Northern Territories issue or the Southern Kuril's issue from a Soviet or Russian perspective again and say this is something that Ainu people should or Ainu organizations should take a stance on. And the Utali Association of Hokkaido actually produced a booklet in 1983 on Ainu perspectives. Of these territories. As you mentioned, the dispute continues till the day, and there are some Ainu that continue to look at the Northern Territories as a way to stress their rights to certain lands and identity and politics.
0: Speaking of the Hokkaido Utari Association in the 1960s and 70s, and also thinking about your work on international sister city relationships, I understand you've also been looking at some delegations of Ainu to other parts of Northeast Asia in the 1960s and 70s. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
1: Certainly. So one of the newest projects I'm I'm working on, and I'm working on this with Professor Michael Hathaway from Simon Fraser University. So we're looking at Ainu delegations To China in the 70s and 80s. So the trips were really about an Ainu initiative to learn about minority policies and the situation of minorities in China. And it was a first attempt for Ainu to go abroad to learn about these issues and how they would apply to Ainu. Because at the time, Ainu were in in discourses both within Ainu communities and outside of Ainu communities, looked at in socioeconomic terms or the like, not as an ethnic identity. And so this was a real shift in thinking for Aini to go to China and learn about these kinds of things. And what's amazing about this is a lot of these visits to China couldn't have happened without understanding the context of the Cold War. And so one of the things that this project is looking at is kind of a case study for challenging a colonial framework for understanding indigenous history. But in the post-war years, the Cold War is an equally important lens by which to view Indigenous history. And so I, I did a little bit of work on this in the past, but I didn't get into a lot of detail about it. So with Michael Hathaway and I have been delving into some of the more archival resources in Japanese and in Chinese. We start out by trying to find all the documents that we could. About these delegations. So the first was 1974, then 76, 1978, and the last one was 1983. And there are a number of, of booklets and, and I knew created newsletters that touch on the first two trips. But the last two trips we were having a little bit harder time finding some documentation. And on the Chinese side, we, we did find some mention of these, these trips as well. But what we were really interested in, in looking at, at these in particular is that the delegation in 1973 China was the first time a foreign state invited a group of Ainu to officially visit their country. And the timing of this is quite amazing when we're looking at the internationalization of Ainu as well as internationalization of indigenous politics around the world. All this is kind of bubbling to the surface about this time. But then when we realize the very first time an Ainu group goes overseas to learn about the idea of ethnic minorities and and things like that, is to communist China. And we wanted to look into that a little bit more. And we just came back from doing some field work in Hokkaido as well, where we were able to to talk to some former participants and people that knew about these, these trips as well.
0: And speaking of land rights, this brings to mind this recent April, 2019 bill in which the Japanese government finally formally recognized the Ainu as an indigenous population in Hokkaido and in Japan. But there were some observers who were criticizing this bill saying it, it doesn't actually recognize land rights. So can you talk about some of the politics of this issue of land rights?
1: Certainly. So the new bill does come short in those aspects of political rights and land rights. It mainly touches on tourism and, and socioeconomic rights. And This is not some sort of new concern. It's been something that's been ongoing since the Aino Association of Hokkaido was pushing for a new Ainu law from the mid-1980s, and that did culminate in what's commonly called the Ainu Cultural Promotion Act, or the new law of the mid-1990s. And that law also was criticized at the time for coming short of political and, and land rights at the time, but it was also seen as a stepping stone that Ainu could build off in later years. So I know because of that so-called stepping stone of the, the mid-1990s, there was a lot of expectation. For this new law to address some of these issues and concerns, but what happens when new policies are developed in states regarding, especially in, in, with indigenous populations around the world, not just in Japan? They often get tied up in national discourse and international discourse. So, in the case of Japan, we can see in, in the, when the first Ainu Cultural Promotion Act was passed in the mid-1990s. There was also a law case on Nibutani Dam. And the court case recognized Ainu as indigenous, but the state did not. So the law was ahead of the state in terms of recognition. And then in 2008, we see the G8 summit being held in in Hokkaido at Lake Toya. And this is at the same time where Japan recognizes Ainu as being indigenous. And so we could say that there's an aspect of international pressure that's encouraging the state to take measures, or change measures, or change laws and rules of recognition towards Yainu. And so when we look at this new law, we can look at what's going on internationally as well, as domestically, to see how this fits into the dialogue. And so with the new law, with the focus on tourism especially, we can see that it's a little bit connected with the push for the Olympics in 2020, and the push of increasing, or drastically increasing, tourism in Japan, from what was a, a couple million people per year to I think this year it reached 30 million and they plan on 40 million tourists in 2020 in Japan around the time of the Olympics. And so we can, we can see this connection of the push for Ainu involvement in, in tourism with the Olympic push for tourism. I'm not saying this is, this is a, a bad or a good thing, but it needs to be looked at together because it's part of the picture.
0: Hokkaido 150, hosted by Tristan Grunow at the University of British Columbia, located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded lands of the Musqueam First Nation. For more videos and information about Hokkaido 150, visit meiji at 150artsubcca slash Hokkaido 150. All music copyright Shikar Studios and used courtesy of Okidub Ainu Band. Thank you for listening. Independency.